Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 40 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, November the 3rd. First, I'll be talking to Scott McKinnell, the country manager for Australia New Zealand of Tenable, the exposure management company that helps organisations reduce cyber risks. We'll talk about what companies should be doing to improve their cyber security. And I'll be talking to EY economist Cheryl Murphy about the latest inflation figures and what it means for the RBA. But first, let's talk to Scott McKinnell. Scott, what are the stats showing in terms of an increase in cyber attacks? Uh, so so two, two, two things. First, they're on the rise, so they're not being abated. That's the first thing. So, you know, I think it was 92% of organisations surveyed by, in a, in, a, in a recent survey that we did by Forrester, came back and said there was 70% of of their businesses have been impacted as a result of some cyber cyber criminal activity that resulted in a significant business loss. So, you know, that's one dimension. And the second one is it's highly profitable for criminals and they're becoming increasingly sophisticated. So they're probably the two go hand in hand. And I think a lot of that has been a case of cyber criminals have taken advantage of you know, the recent pandemic, which in of itself led to probably two major things. One is people accelerating a lot of transformational activity, you know, moving to the cloud, moving to hybrid models and things. So that got exacerbated. So that sped up, accelerated. And then I suppose a unscheduled, uncharted remote, you know, uptake and remote usage. And people were scrambling in terms of business continuity just to keep you know, the lights on, and they hadn't given consideration to the new world order about what working from home very meant from a, a cybersecurity perspective, and cyber criminals took advantage of it. So a lot of conspiring, you know, the perfect storm, really. So that's that's what we're seeing. You say that the cyber criminals are making money out of it. They are. So, you know, cyber crime has been on, on the up and up. And if you even revert back to potentially a couple of years ago and what what their modus operandi was was targeting individuals and so they would you know try and solicit payments out of people or you know more recent times the threat of publishing um, information or data breaches and then or, or visa card numbers and things of like that what it's evolved to now 
is ransomware, and that's that's clearly they've, they've managed to monetize it and find you know this is a this is a great you know financial venture for them. And the way that they do that is really um, again probably twofold. One is uh, moving away from targeting potentially individuals and then targeting organizations around who have critical infrastructure. So you know, they've moved there from, from targeting individuals to targeting organizations and bringing organizations down, which, which clearly has a, a larger impact, not just financially, but actually it really brings things to, it, to its knees. That's fascinating because that raises another issue is what particular sectors and industries are vulnerable to cyber attacks? Well, it... it, it it's, it's about 11. So the government's now are moving towards legislating. There used to be four major critical infrastructures. So it used to be considered utilities and financial sector and things of that nature, but it's been expanded to 11. And I've, and I've, that's come about because of an awareness about how reliant we are on multiple sectors and supply chains, fundamental, you know, fundamental existence in our society. So you now have got um, food supply, you've got water, you've got electricity, you've got financial sector, you've got hospitals, healthcare, and anything where if you actually stop and pause for a moment and think if these organizations and services are to halt, there's a major impact to society. And that's the new, the new vector that that cyber criminals are targeting and, and people think, oh, it's unscrupulous and it's awful. I mean, you have to remind them, these are criminals. They don't operate like you and I do. So anything where they can create havoc and harm and the larger the impact, the more likely they are to extort um, ransoms from people. And this is, this is what's happening. Based on that, you'd see, say any sector could be quite vulnerable. I mean, uh, supermarkets, for example, come to mind. Correct. Correct. Supply chain. So anywhere in the food supply chain. So what we've seen usually is primary, the primary or secondary aspect where, um, you know, it's food production facilities, as opposed to if you have a, if you think about, I'll say food from a, from an agricultural perspective, you've got a multitude of farms and it's quite diversified and, and trucks and trams and things of that nature. Once you have an aggregation point, either at a distribution depot or a meat production facility, um, there, that's where they're concentrating it because they're highly automated lots of reliance on information technology and, and very quickly you can cripple that a very critical, I'll call it not a choke point, but an aggregation point within a critical supply chain. So what are the risks and the implications for business with this? The risks are uh, you're going to find yourself or organisations could find themselves in a situation where if they don't have some form of plan or, or a process or a policy, call it whatever you will, and they're brought to their knees, the first thing is, and, and, and I'm going to focus on ransomware because this is what's, you know, the, the issue of the day, is you find yourself being extorted and not being able to work, like literally not being able to function. And, and again, there are plenty of examples in the public domain of, you know, washing machine manufacturers, beer producing facilities, meat producing, oil and gas, literally stop working. And then they're, the pro they're faced with the prospect of, which is not a great prospect of, you know, this is the ransom that's that, that they're being demanded. Do they or don't they pay it? Because there's a general philosophy, in fact, has moved beyond that. The government's very clear about not paying ransoms because it just perpetuates the issue. So now you, you're, you've got the situation where you're literally not, not functioning. This could be measured in millions of dollars a day, an hour, a minute, depending on, on, the, on the nature of it, which in of itself, trying to restore yourself back to uh, an operative state is the first dilemma. And then the second one is, 
if we or do we choose to pay the ransom? And if we do, does that actually improve our posture? So that's the risk that's posed to people being brought to their knees, which in of itself is not great. And then what path do you take to do restorative activity? Um, and so we're very big advocates of the way the government is moving and the way that the, the trend is for, you know, the extortion around ransomware and releasing publicly identifiable information. It's all about prevention. And, and the crazy thing is, Leon, is most of the exploits that these cyber criminals use have been out in the wild for ages and are easy to fix and remediate. You know, they're known exploits, known vulnerabilities. And the ability for organizations to put in controls and, and multi-factor authentication has been around for years and years and years. So it's not like these are necessarily super sophisticated attacks in most instances. People just get caught in the wild because they haven't done the basic hygiene properly. Well, that's fascinating because, uh, I mean, that, that raises a question. I can see what the government's doing, but what can individual businesses do in terms of developing strategies and uh, plan Bs? Yeah, well, again, um, one, one of the curious things is, um, in, you know, in a, in a survey we did you know, about 12 months ago was, um, and, and we've observed this in the market ourselves, boards are very aware that they've got, a, you know, they've got, you know, a cybersecurity risk. I think, you know, you could talk to most people, the lay people now in, in commerce, they would understand that it's a, it's a major, major risk. Um, so you've got the people at at the, I'll call it the director's level and, and the highest echelons who understand the requirement for compliance and the implications of their services being taken offline at one end of the spectrum. And then at the very end of the, of the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the very technical practitioners that understand all the risks at a technical level. And where, there's, where we see issues um, is between the technical practitioners who understand what actually needs to be done and the very highest echelons of commercial people and directors that know something needs to be done. And then there's this mismatch in the middle of communication. And often when we go there, so is, okay, who's responsible operationally for you know, mitigating risks, doing remediation, triaging, allocating funds, standing up a cyber maturity program. And there's this kind of swirling mess right now because historically people have seen it as being a technical issue in the domain of, and they're only tasked with doing what they can. And so what people could probably do to answer your question is having a clear understanding lines of communication and setting up either a framework, a governance policy, having a, an awareness throughout the organization of this is a business risk now, not, a, not an IT issue or an IT risk, and treating it like you would with occupational safety and health or other major elements that people, you know, a risk of a business that, that they generally have policies, procedures, educational awareness, business continuity plans, remediation plans and things like that, and just, and, and just do that. So, but the issue is the disconnect between high-end and, and technical practitioners and people trying to push it as a, and, and treat it as an IT issue. Uh, what that would suggest, wouldn't it, that you would actually need every organisation in those sectors would need specific people in charge of those risks and managing those risks. Correct. Again, at different levels throughout the organisation, it, it wouldn't necessitate that people need to have a deep, sound knowledge of cyber because, you know, the way that a board member is going to look at cyber risk, they're going to look at probability, you know, probability extent and everything as, as a risk number. But as you cascade down the organisation, you are correct, is somewhere in, in that, I'll call it, you know, line of command, 
there needs to be a continuity of responsibility fit for purpose for what you know their expertise and competencies are and what they should be looking at and there's a big disconnect from that at the moment which means you need a specific team actually to handle yeah yeah like you know I'll, I'll draw some parallels to people that do it like financial community are quite across this and to a lesser extent critical infrastructure because they're used to about continuity of power and you know things going bang and thing but I'll, I'll i'll frame around the financial sector bit and because they're often the first movers and they understand risk financial risk apra you know they have a lot of compliance and governance so it's already in their dna this this philosophy of risk management and risk mitigation. And so they pivot really well. They stand up committees, they have boards, um, they have business continuity plans, they have well-funded programs of work, they have traffic light systems as it's being delivered, you, you know, and so and such forth. So, you know, I can revert back to even six or seven years ago where, where, where it really moved in the financial institute where cybersecurity risk used to be on a board agenda item. I knew this for a fact that we used to be, you know, um, on the general risk risk um, committee as, a, as an item that was addressed maybe once a month. And even as, re even as long ago as five years ago, that changed. And I spoke to the size of one of the major trading banks and they said, it's now a item for the chairperson and it's a two weekly cadence and that stakeholders have changed. That's how seriously they took it. And again, it sounds very simple, and you'd think that that would be a universal principle that everyone would understand, but it's surprisingly, this is why I'm talking to you, I need to get the message out. It's not, these are simple things that just need to, everyone just to be aware of. Well, Scott, that's all very illuminating, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right, thank you. And now let's talk to EY economist Sherelle Murphy. Now, Sherelle, the inflation figures came in last week. Uh, they were not unexpectedly high, but uh, uh, what does this mean for the RBA? Uh, everyone's tipping the RBA will be raising rates on cap day. Yeah, there was a, the numbers were a little stronger than expected. Not much, but I think it's in some of the detail that makes us a little bit concerned about the fact that it's not playing out now in line with the Reserve Bank's playbook. So... That means that the Reserve Bank are likely to be worried again about the trajectory for inflation, which basically means that they're not likely to see inflation fall into the target band in the time frame that they previously said they expected it to. And so that is, in our view anyway, why the Reserve Bank are likely to put in place another rate hike on Melbourne Cup Day. What about also December? It's possible, but um, I think, you know, we're, they're in the kind of fine tuning stage of monetary policy at the moment in the sense that we've done, they've done most of the hard work. They probably were thinking through winter that, you know, they, they, they could have been done and, and maybe they're still thinking that, but uh, this is more of a tweak rather than, I guess, going for another onslaught. So I don't think, no, I don't think December as well. You certainly wouldn't rule it out, but I think probably one is enough at this stage. But uh, it's certainly the figures suggest that, I mean, the RBA is tipping inflation will get down to 2 to 3% target band around the end of 2025. That could mean we now could be waiting till 2026. Would that be right? Well, that's right. If they didn't, if they, you know, if they don't tighten again, in our view, they probably won't make that target now. So that, that would therefore push push it out for another year. And I just don't think that the Reserve Bank are willing to tolerate that now. They're, they're already kind of being quite patient in, in getting inflation back to the band. But now, uh, as Michelle Bullock said in her speech last week, 
it does seem uh, unlikely that they're willing to be patient any, any more beyond what they've already said they would. So I think that's what's going to cause them to move. Okay. What's interesting here is that the RBA is actually raising rates at a time when the economy is weakening. Harvey mm. Norman came out with their figures last week that their profit had dropped by 50%. That's true, but the Reserve Bank doesn't target Harvey Norman's profit. They target no, 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 no. But my point is that the economy is getting weaker or is weakening oh, at the moment. I know. The and, RBA and is I'm, raising rates during a time of a weaker economy. That's right. And and I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek there, but, but the point is still relevant because it doesn't really matter what's happening with the economy. What matters is what's happening with inflation. And the economy can be weakening, but is it weakening enough to deliver the lower inflation that they need that's the real question i think that you know we've come from a very un, come through a fairly unusual couple of years of course compared to the previous sort of 10 15 years certainly in my career as an economist where inflation actually you know surprised on the upside to a large ex, you know to a very large extent and so you know we've, they've got to get it back down and that does require grinding quite hard into the economy to try and slow it down enough to get inflation back to that two to three percent band so that's been you know that's been fairly painful and i think they're not necessarily done yet what are the forces driving this uh, inflation it was petrol prices obviously and rents would that be right uh yes although i think you know it, it's fairly broad based actually this uh increase in inflation in the september quarter and you could see it in both goods and services prices so goods prices had been showing, I guess, a, a tempering for about five quarters in a row. And that, by that, I mean, the inflation rate had been getting weaker and weaker and weaker until the September quarter in which it turned up again. And services prices had been weakening for um, two quarters in a row, and then it turned up again. So in other words, what progress the Reserve Bank had been making on getting that rate of inflation to come down does seem to have somewhat reversed in the September quarter. And I think that's the key to what's going to worry them. And so, and that in itself suggests that, you know, there's still quite a lot of domestic demand pressure in the economy um, and enough to um, cause them to try and slow that down. What are those, what are these forces in the domestic economy? Well, I mean, we, there's a range of things. I mean, you look at, for example, services prices, they're still going up at a reasonable rate. Uh, you think about streaming services, we think about even accommodation, hotel spending, that's still, even though it's coming down, it's still fairly high. You know, recreation services, still fairly high. And then on the goods side, while, you know, we'd seen a lot of progress there, we'd not, we're not seeing enough progress. So a lot of goods prices are still running higher than the 2 to 2 to 3% band, including a lot of imported uh, equipment you know, like sort of AV equipment, which is a point the Reserve Bank's made in the past. Uh, and that's not coming down in line with what's happening in other countries, which does suggest that that's a domestic reason for strong demand, which is allowing retailers to keep the prices moving up. What about wages? They, they seem to be rising as well. Yes, they are. Um, certainly, and as an input to services, that's important. Um, it's not not been a huge problem and it potentially won't be a huge problem but I think the jury is still out on that one because clearly we still have a strong labour market we still have some enterprise bargaining agreements flowing through the economy um, and we could see an, a, I guess wage pressure lift a little bit further from here I think the Reserve Bank's willing to tolerate a little bit more of that 
but not perhaps get so we've certainly seen wages rise in line with the strong labor market and i think it's too early to say necessarily that that lift in wages pressure is has dissipated for a number of reasons one is the labor market of course still remains quite strong there are still some enterprise bargaining agreements flowing through the economy and these do tend to be causing an increase in wages because you know they're, they're setting higher wage rates than they have in the past and i think just we just kind of can't necessarily see a clean decline in wages pressure from here on in so it could definitely concern the reserve bank although the rhetoric from the Reserve Bank suggests that it's not too much of a concern at this point. Right, okay. But certainly with the jobs market, I mean, with uh, with the unemployment level so low and it's uh, not rising up to 4%, as, as would be forecast, that we can expect wages pressures to continue. Potentially, yes. It's, it's an interesting one because we haven't necessarily seen wages rise at a rate which is consistent with the strength in the labour market in the recent past. So should we expect that in future? We can't be 100% sure. There are some mitigating factors here that the the rise in new migrants is, you know, probably keeping a little bit of downward pressure on wages compared to if we didn't have that rise. So, you know, there are some things acting in the opposite direction. What's interesting, though, is uh, I think coming into this... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is quite apparent in the profit reporting season. A lot of companies are now, they're not forecasting how well they're going to be doing ahead. And they're suddenly dealing with all this debt, which is going to be quite relevant for the RBA in terms of interest rate rises. Indeed, but in... The corporate sector has not been problematic from a debt point of view. Um, and when we came out of the global financial crisis, a lot of corporate debt was effectively lowered, paid off, not taken on again. And there, you know, there certainly has been a bit of a pickup in demand for credit from the corporate sector, but it's not been dramatic. So I don't suspect that that's a huge concern. And in fact, I think we can see that in the data because the corporate sector continues to pr- pr- perform fairly well. The business surveys are still fairly, they're not super positive, but they're, they're certainly not weak. And at the same time, the they're continuing to hire, as we know, through the jobs market. So I think the corporate sector is in fairly good shape. Now, there are exceptions to that. Of course, the construction sector is, is one in particular with residential construction um, having gone through a fairly wild ride uh, recently. 
but mostly it seems to be okay. It's the household sector that's really, uh, I guess, bearing the brunt of that higher debt burden. Which is why the consumer confidence is down. That's right, that's right. And it, it's interesting at the moment because it does look like two very distinct sectors, um, with the consumer clearly slowing right down, in fact, consumption falling in real terms, whereas the business sector continues to move forward. Another sector that we don't talk about as much, but it's still very important, is the government sector. And this is a sector that's actually spending up lots of activity going on across both the Commonwealth and the states, some of which, of course, is big infrastructure projects, some of it's on health. There's all sorts of demands on government. And that, of course, has flow-on effects for the business sector as well, and probably is part of the reason that the, the, the corporate sector is doing okay as well. And uh, so the question of debt, although many, many CEOs have never had to deal with debt levels that high, would not be that big a factor now. Not on average, but of course, you know, there are a lot of exceptions within the Australian economy and some certainly would be feeling the pinch now, that's that's for sure. Uh, but overall, you know, it seems like they're coping with it fairly well. So what do you forecast for next year in terms of the RBA? I think the Reserve Bank are going to be sitting on rates for some time. I don't see the opportunity for them to be cutting rates really, you know, in the next Certainly, definitely not in the next six months and maybe not even in the next 12. Now, the markets do have, are starting to surprise rate cuts in towards the back of last year. Some forecasters in the market are saying the same. But I think, you know, what we've seen from international evidence is that a lot of the inflation that's hanging around at the moment is fairly sticky. It is coming through on that services side. It is global often, uh, a lot of the forces, and it just doesn't feel to me like an economy that's going to be seeing inflation decelerate within a short period of time. And that means I think the Reserve Bank's going to have to hold on to rates at this this sort of, certainly not high, but more elevated level than, than it's been in some time. And so we mightn't see inflation come down for several years. Several years is a big call, but, you know, and and we we will see inflation come down because the Reserve Bank will make sure that happens. It's just a matter of, you know, how quickly that does happen. I certainly think in a sort of a a 12-month period, um, it's going to be a slow burn. So it might get down to, say, 4%. In 12 months, that's right. And then kind of into 2025, we're looking at, you know, back down below three. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll be watching it with great fascination, Cheryl. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the World Bank is warning that even a small disruption to crude supply due to escalating Middle Eastern conflict could remove between 500,000 and 2 million barrels a day from global markets. If that happens, prices could rise to between $93 and $102 a barrel, the bank said in a report on Monday. The outlook could darken quickly if the latest conflict widens its scope, with a medium-sized disruption of 3 to 5 million barrels a day, driving prices as high as $121 a barrel. The biggest potential disruption foreseen by the bank could remove 6 to 8 million barrels of oil per day, comparable in magnitude to the 1973 Arab oil embargo. That worst-case scenario could see prices reach $157 a barrel. And President Joe Biden signed an executive order on artificial intelligence that establishes standards for security and privacy protections and requires developers to safety test new models, casting it as necessary regulation for the emerging technology. 
To realise the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology, Biden said at a White House event Monday, detailing his most significant action yet on a technology whose practical applications and public use have skyrocketed in recent months. The order will have broad impacts on companies developing powerful AI tools that could threaten national security. Leading developers such as Microsoft, Amazon and Alphabet Inc.'s Google will need to submit test results on their new models to the government before releasing them to the public. Biden said the Commerce Department will also develop standards for watermarking AI-generated content such as audio or images, often referred to as deep fakes. Biden said he will direct the Department of Energy to ensure AI systems don't pose chemical, biological or nuclear risks and the Department of Defence and Homeland Security to develop cyber protections to make computers and critical infrastructure safer. And the competition regulator is stepping up its push for UK-style laws to rein in big tech, branding Google, Meta, Apple... Amazon and Microsoft serial acquires, while warning their early dominance in generative AI threatens to squeeze out smaller rivals. The regulator is also looking at forcing Apple and Google to open up their app stores to more developers, highlighting the UK as a potential model to promote more competition. Freedom of Information documents released by Treasury revealed the extent of the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's lobbying of the federal government, including sending letters to the Communications Minister and Attorney-General the Court for action the push comes as the ACCC's five-year inquiry into the local market power of the digital titans is drawing towards its close, with the need for reforms becoming more urgent as the biggest tech companies are spending tens of billions of dollars in the AI race. Microsoft's US $10 billion or $15 billion Aussie investment in ChatGPT owner OpenAI catapulted generative AI into the mainstream with a platform attracting 100 million active users within two months of its launch, forcing governments to play catch-up with enforcing regulation. The ACCC sent Treasury a briefing note from the UK Department of Business and Trade about its new pro-competition regime for digital markets, which forces Google and Apple to open up their app stores to mobile developers. The British document calls for the companies to stop favouring their own business on app stores, or in some cases distorting competition between third parties, and allow users access to alternative app stores subject to meeting reasonable and sufficient security conditions. And a massive trade deal with the European Union appears all but doomed after endgame negotiations between the two sides collapsed before they even began. Trade Minister Don Farrell was due to hold talks with his EU counterpart in Osaka on Monday, but told negotiators he was walking away from the deal for the second time in three months because the offer on the table is still not good enough. The EU is a massive high-income trading bloc of 445 million people and is one of the few markets with whom Australia currently has no free trade deal. As a result, the EU imposes strict quotas and high tariffs on Australian agricultural imports, which negotiators have been trying to remove, or at the very least, substantially reduce. Five years after talks began, Australian farmers say the existing offer is a dud, arguing it barely improves market access for sugar, red meat and dairy, and would in fact impose conditions for European-mandated restrictions on local farming practices. The other major sticking point has been EU demands for Australia to give up naming rights to hundreds of products, including Prosecco, Parmesan and Feta, to protect so-called geographical indications. Talks have been deadlocked since July, when Senator Farrell walked away from Brussels empty-handed, but he was holding out some hope that European negotiators would come to a sucker with an improved offer. However, Agriculture Minister Murray Watt said the European side had not budged significantly since then and expressed frustration about its notoriously protectionist market for agriculture. 
They have not been prepared to put on the table a significantly better offer than what they've offered before, he said. With European Parliament elections due mid-next year, Senator Watt warned it could be months, if not years, before talks would resume. I think it will be quite some time before an Australian government or any EU leader is able to negotiate a deal, and that's a bit of a shame for both Australia and the EU, he said. A delegation of farming groups, including the National Farmers Federation, NFF, and Meat and Livestock Australia, is in Osaka with the Trade Minister, and it's backed its decision to stand firm. As part of the agreement, the EU has been pushing for greater access to Australia's vast critical minerals and for the abolition of the $1 billion luxury car tax, which would benefit Australian consumers. The two sides agree a trade deal would help both markets diversify away from China, which slapped eye-watering tariffs on Australian imports during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in what was widely viewed as economic coercion. The Albanese government has been gradually restoring trade ties with Beijing since coming to power, and it is hoped the Prime Minister's upcoming trip to China will see a further relaxation of sanctions. And the insurance industry was underprepared for floods that lushed the East Coast last year, with antiquated technology and a lack of skilled staff, tradies and materials, turning the disaster into a ruling experience for many of its customers. Those are some of the findings of a landmark review for the insurance industry released on Tuesday by the Insurance Council of Australia after months of investigation into the sector's response to the floods by consulting house Deloitte. The ICA has pledged to accept, in principle, seven recommendations to improve the insurance industry's response to natural disasters in future. This will see insurers move to improve preparedness and resourcing, as well as rework chunks of the general insurance codes of practice at an upcoming review. Deloitte's review commissioned by the ICA in the wake of the 2022 floods, finds the insurance sector was not prepared for the $6 billion disaster, which triggered more than 242,000 claims in what stands as the most expensive catastrophe in Australia in the past century. Insurers faced a massive disaster spread across the East Coast, with a response to the damage hampered by shortages across the board. The review found insurers entered the disaster with a short supply of workers in the sector amid a broader tight labour market. In addition, building materials to repair damaged properties were in short supply and trending towards historically high prices. This was coupled with a shortage of used and new cars and car parts amid a pandemic overhang. Regional and rental accommodation was also in short supply amid high domestic tourism and reduced capacity, leading to a shortage of options to rehome people affected by floods. Deloitte finds some insurers entered the disaster with antiquated computer platforms for claims handling, with several still using DOS-based systems. DOS was a computer operating system commonly used between 1981 and 1995. Deloitte found these old computer systems were difficult to integrate with other systems, more inflexible in adapting to new functional requirements, and ultimately impact negatively on the policyholder experience. The review found insurers failed community expectations around communicating to those affected by the floods, with many missing deadlines to report to insured customers about their claims. The report found more than 34,000 complaints were lodged with seven insurers, with many due to delayed claims handling in the wake of the floods. The report makes seven recommendations to apply to all insurers as a result, warning the industry to better prepare for catastrophes in extreme weather. Insurers are also urged to improve their communications with policyholders and better resource capabilities to respond to catastrophic events. Deloitte calls for insurers to invest in process, technology and infrastructure in the context of responding to a catastrophe. Deloitte said insurers must better coordinate with governments on improved customer outcomes, including supporting access to government payments, consistency to approach in cleaning up to debris and incentives 
incentivising investments in disaster resilience. Under the proposed recommendations from Deloitte, insurers would also rework their code of practice and definition of extraordinary catastrophe. And Qantas disputes the notion that customers are buying tickets for a particular flight as it blamed its booking systems and the sheer scale of travel changes for its selling flights that had already been cancelled. In a statement of defence filed with the Federal Court, Qantas said the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's case hinges on a definition of the services that Qantas supplies. The ACCC contends that Qantas supplies carriage on particular flights. Qantas disputes this. The service that Qantas supplies is not carriage on any particular flight, but rather a bundle of rights that includes alternative options to which consumers are entitled in respect of a cancelled flight, the airline told the Federal Court. The airline's statement of defence filed on October the 27th says it makes clear to ordinary and reasonable consumers that while Qantas will do its best to get consumers where they want to be on time, it does not guarantee particular flight times or, or its flight schedule. The ACCC said in late August that Qantas sold tickets for more than 8,000 already cancelled flights for an average two weeks and as long as 47 days after they'd already been scrapped internally, causing confusion, higher costs and delay for travellers. And it might be Halloween, but the number of ASX-listed zombie companies has exploded in the past six months and is expected to continue to rise as inflation and rising costs put pressure on business cash flows. An analysis by court auditors at KPMG has revealed companies that have exhibited its indicators of financial distress for three or more consecutive quarters has risen by 51% to 127 from 80 in May. Over the same time, the total market cap of the zombie companies, or those that are refusing to die, increased by 82% from $1.7 billion to $3 billion. KPMG head of turnaround and restructuring services, Gail Dickinson, said given the speed and duration of the current interest rate tightening cycle, it was not surprising to see the rise in the number of zombie companies. The current inflationary environment is driving rising input costs and for companies unable to pass this on to their customers. It is eating away at their margins and starting to put serious pressure on their cash flow, she said. According to KPMG, there were 22 ASX-listed zombie companies in March 2022, 66 in September 2022, and 84 in May 2023. These figures are based on financial stress indicators such as share price volatility, short and long-term debt, liquidity, profitability, net assets, and other analyses. Ms Dickerson said an important factor in the zombification of companies was an increasingly aggressive ATO, which is owed about $50.2 billion of collectible debt. And Uber Australia said as one technology industry source, is a crown jewel for the global company. One former food delivery executive describes Australia as a big profit centre for Uber Eats. Figures lodged with the Australian Securities Investments Commission show just how large it is, underscoring what's at stake in the federal government's plan to impose new payrolls on the food delivery and rideshare behemoth under the banner of fair wages for workers. Uber Australia's collections through a third party surged 20% last year to $90.2 billion, which represents the best proxy for the full size of spending on this platform in the country. The accounts for the 12 months to December 31, which never give a complete picture of a company because they're designed only to comply with corporate and accounting, show revenue of $2.6 billion and gross profit of $1.2 billion. Uber spent $1.4 billion on providing services, which include its payments to delivery workers. And the global economy is now more at risk from major technological political and environmental changes that will slow growth, put upward pressure on inflation and leave interest rates higher, a senior Reserve Bank official has warned. Brad Jones, the bank's assistant governor responsible for financial services, used a speech in Sydney on Tuesday morning to argue the advent of social media and fast international movement of money was amplifying the risks facing the financial systems and the broader economy. Jones said debt servicing by borrowers would become more challenging if interest rates remained higher than the growth in incomes. 
Another issue was the way social media meant information could be passed among investors almost instantaneously, which meant runs on banks could happen overnight. Herding effects associated with the social media would present a new challenge for financial regulators, and it's clearly easier to withdraw deposits at the stroke of a keyboard than it is to stand for hours in the rain outside a bank branch and bury cash in the yard, he said. Jones said outside of those risks to the financial system were issues caused by geopolitical tensions, cyber and digital threats, plus the impact of climate change. He said even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there were issues with the global trading systems caused by tensions between countries. These had now grown after the pandemic highlighted supply chain issues. Cyber risks were a major issue for all financial institutions, he said, arguing they now needed the highest standards of management and governance. Jones said risks to the stability of the financial systems due to climate change would be with the world for years to come. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Steve Orenstein, founder and CEO of Zoom2U Technologies. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongethler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.